0: Next Chapter Podcasts. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to you. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend The king of peace for Angelo Talking the 500 until the end Talking the 500
1: until the end With my man J.M. On the 500 Talking the 500 until the end The best version of it. Yep. Don't even try to tell me I'm wrong. Take me to the river by Talking Heads from their '78 sophomore album. More songs about buildings and food. That might be the greatest album title so far that we've had on this list. Big ups, DB. Oh, guess what? It's also number 383 out of 500 on the 500 with me, Josh Adam Myers, the King of Fleece, the reason we congregate, or at least I'd like to believe. You're probably here for the music or the guest. Who fucking knows? You've been watching? Because we have uh, two ways for you to see me and my guest. Well, you see the guest in their home, and you see me in my mom's. I don't know. if This is like a dining room, I guess. I don't even know what it is. Foyer. But, guys, every Wednesday we publish full episodes to Patreon for the 500 Club members paying $5 a month or more. And we really appreciate the Fleece Army. Thank you, guys, all my little caduglies-spooglies for supporting the show. And if you want to, go to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. Oh, shit. We're also posting the videos to YouTube every Thursday. That's pretty dope. I got some big things coming up, guys. Thursday night, I will be at Soul Joel's Comedy Club in Royersford, Pennsylvania, headlining again. I want to see all my Philly and New Jersey people out there, man. Come to the show. The heated dome. It's gonna be so cool. You might go alone, but you won't leave alone. 95% 95% of the people that come to my shows Leave with a new girlfriend Or a new boyfriend Let's get to the album Talking Heads Oh yeah 7pm guys Come to the show 7pm February 4th Soul Joe's Comedy Club Heated turn Heated turn Whatever I said 7pm $20 tickets Young and Sick did the poster It's gonna be dope I really like this place, man I just love getting up to Philly I go to Lorenzo's I get a slice Maybe wrapping in a fucking Cheese steak if I'm feeling good Alright, like I said a moment ago The Talking Heads Not the, you can't say the Talking Heads Talking Heads Yeah, there it is, I got it right Talking Heads are a band that I knew the hits for But I was really excited about Really being able to dig into this one Because I like all of their music I always thought David was a little awkward, but you know, that's you you have dude, I'm telling you right now, we are on a run of like near autistic, kind of on the spectrum artists. So who have we had? Bob Dylan. He I don't know if he's on the spectrum per se, but definitely, definitely Pete Townsend from The Who. I mean, that was what David Wilde said. Then we have David Byrne from like The Talking Heads Fuck I can't You keep saying the From Talking Heads Then you have Modern Lovers And the lead singer That supposedly Is on the spectrum And then You have the Beach Boys And Brian Wilson 100% Alright let's get Into this record So this was released July 21st, 1978, on Sire Records, produced by my boy. He's been around, Brian Eno. We've talked about him a lot. And this is the second record from American New Wave Post Punk. Art pop, rock group, talking heads. In 1974, Scotland, born and Baltimore-raised singer David Byrne, drummer Chris France of Kentucky, and his girlfriend Tina Weymouth of Southern California were classmates at the Rhode Island School of Design. Byrne and France... Formed the conceptual and performance art pop group The Artistics. Tina was the band's driver. After Chris and Tina graduated, the three of them moved to a communal loft in New York. Unable to find a bass player, Byrne and France decided Tina, who could play guitar, could fill that role. Dressed like the average proto-preppy art school students that they were, they played their quirky mix of minimalistic rock, funk, Motown, and punk at cutting-edge venues like the Mud Club and CBGB's alongside up-and-coming bands like Blondie and the Ramones. After their first single with Sire Records was released, Milwaukee native keyboardist and guitarist Jerry Harrison dropped out of Harvard University's architecture program to join. Harrison was a few years older than most of the bands and a founding member of Jonathan Richmond's Modern Lovers, which we will be doing next week. While working on that first album, they went on a tour of Europe with the Ramones when in London they met famed producer Brian Eno. Eno saw their set and asked them to lunch the next day, after which they went back to his place and listened to records and Bonded. After another meeting later in New York, they all agreed he would produce their next record. This would become the first of four records made with Eno, including a side project with Byrne. They were the first artists to record at Island Records founder Chris Blackwell's newly constructed state-of-the-art Compass Point Studios in Nassau, the Bahamas. While the local Caribbean music and Eno broadened their musical landscape, this was the last record before the band and Burn as a solo artist would really start exploring and incorporating world music into their sound. It also marks the jumping-off point for when Talking Heads' career really takes off, and they become one of the most important bands in history. You'll have to wait until the episode starts to hear all the details Because we're going to talk all about it You can also check out Morty's full biography On the 500 website, the500podcast.com Because guess what? My guest today is a dude I mentioned that dropped out of Harvard The one and only Jerry Harrison One of the founding members of Modern Lovers And he joined Talking Heads in 1977 And has been with the band until their breakup in 91 And after the breakup He went on to produce a bunch of dope shit Like live Violent Femmes No Doubt The Verve Pipe Dude, I can't believe he produced live, dude I alone love you I alone tempt you Fear is not the end of it Jerry's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002 with Talking Heads. He was received the 2021 Lifetime Achievement Award at this year's Grammys with Talking Heads. And I had a blast talking to him, man. You know, I get really nervous when I talk to the musicians, especially if they have something to do with the record. I mean, you remember the Peter Asher episode. I got so much shit for trying to crack jokes to Peter Asher, and he hated me. I thought it was fun audience not so much you guys thought you were like you gotta show peter asher respect i respect everybody people but i didn't have to worry about jerry because jerry was awesome man i i could have talked to that dude for three hours and i knew we were going good because originally he only gave us like an hour and a half and then right close to that hour and a half he goes he's like i can go longer i was like yes we got him but he got me and my heart Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free on all platforms. And if you're listening on Apple, leave a five star rating and leave a review. Please follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Go to my website, joshadammyers.com, so you can get tickets for Royersford, PA, February 4th, backslash shows Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group. Run by Crazy Evan at the 500 Podcast with Jam, and we have a 500 Podcast fan page. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but uh, here we go with number 383, Badoon Doon Doon. More songs, Badoon Doon Doon, about buildings and food. More songs about building and food. More songs about buildings. Before we get into the episode, Fleece Army, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Super Speciosa. If you already take Kratom, because it's an incredible supplement, people say it's like CBD. I think it's more of an energy and focus enhancer. And yes, Fleece Army, I love staying healthy because it's so important. And taking Kratom has been absolutely necessary in my wellness regimen. But unlike other kratoms out there, my sponsor, Super Speciosa, keeps their kratom 100% clean and natural. Because Super Speciosa contains only one ingredient kratom leaves crushed into powder. Boom, simple. Every single batch is put through a natural cleaning process to eliminate germs and protect you. And the Kratom is tested, sifted, blended, screened for potency, and carefully packaged in a lab-grade facility. And that's what you want. A certified system that makes sure you're getting 100% of the best shit out there. And if you're buying Kratom from your local store, that's a huge mistake. You'll save yourself a ton of money and get better Kratom shopping with Super Speciosa. Guys, they sent me a gaggle of stuff. And I've been only using their Kratom. It's great. I mean this. Seal of approval. And if you order from us, you get 20% off your first order. So go to getsuperleaf.com slash 500. Once again, that's getsuperleaf.com slash 500 and get 20% off your next order. We'll post the link in our show notes so it's easy for you guys just to click it and take advantage of this offer. And we thank Super Speciosa for sponsoring this podcast. They're incredible. It helps me. It can help you too. Try it out. Thank me later. Go get your kratom at slash 500. Back to the pod. So to all the Fleece Army, we are getting a double dip episode today because we have like a member of we have a member who is not only a part of this album, but he's a part of the next week album. And I couldn't be more excited. So and also I want to talk about you produce one of my favorite records of all time, which is Throwing Copper by Live. Oh, yes. So so let's get right into it. So tell me. When did you first become aware of Talking Heads? Because what I know is you were, they were a three-piece playing in the New York scene and then put out a single before they started on their debut. So, so, so tell me what was going on.
0: I think I became first aware of them in oh, the summer of 75. And I first met them in the summer of 76. I was in a funny position. I had been, uh, when the Modern Lovers broke up, I ended up teaching at Harvard. I, I actually got a call from my professor at Harvard asking me to be his teaching assistant because someone had, you know, I don't know, couldn't do it at the very last second. And I went, Well, you're in luck. The band just broke up. And so I taught at Harvard and then I worked for a, a computer company, a software development company called Cambridge Computer. That actually, those of you in the tech world and particularly a little bit older, do you remember Lotus 123? I think so. So that was developed by a guy named Mitch Kapoor. And he worked at this same company, but after me. So I was working at Cambridge Computer and I had was about to start the graduate school of design to become an architect at Harvard when I met the Talking Heads. And we met and then they called me up and said, why don't you come down? We're like looking for a keyboard player. And- Literally, the end of The Modern Lovers, we never got our full advance from Warner Brothers, and I was beyond broke. And to get to the, be able to do a rehearsal with the Talking Heads, I I basically waited around until we used the band Van, and Ernie Brooks and I moved a family to New York so that I could get to New York. And as it worked out, the organ I was going to bring didn't fit. So I just brought a guitar. <laughs> so I show up and they went, well, we're looking for a keyboard player. Where's your keyboard? And I said, oh, it didn't fit in the van. <laughs> but I brought a guitar. Why don't we just start playing some music? Guitar's fine. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and so this is where they lived down on the Lower East Side on Christie Street where they lived in this building that they had experienced bullets going through the window. The bathroom was out in a Pitch black hall in this building that had no other residential uh, residents. It was uh, um, someone was raising chickens on the roof, and, and it was a you know it was that mid seventies early eighties was a time in New York where you really had, you had to really understand which streets not to walk down and which ones. What was your route between places yeah. to be as safe as I possible? I think it's still
1: kind of like that, just uh, especially during the pandemic.
0: Oh, that could be. <laughs> that could be, but for different reasons. Uh, and so we went out for Chinese food, and we I think we started the rehearsal about like one o'clock in the morning, and it just went fantastic. And so they said, well, we're – I don't know if it was then or they said, well, we're going to do this couple of shows come down with your keyboards and we'll have some rehearsals. We're actually going to have a horn player as well. So I came down at the end of the summer of 76 and we played at the lower Manhattan ocean club. Um, As far as the hit, there's a guy named Mickey Ruskin who owned Max's Kansas city, the local, the lower Manhattan ocean club, I think he may have owned the Saint before that. He was very instrumental in being supportive of the up-and-coming, we'll say, punk music scene. But also, was more obsessed by the abstract expressionists. I mean, if William de Kooning walked in, that was a great for him. Great for him. If uh, you know, Paul McCartney walked in, yeah. Well, I know who he is. You know, so. We played the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club, and it went great. And I and I and they said, "Well, we think this is really good." And I can't remember exactly when they said we'd like you to join the band. I think it was a little after that. I had started uh, architecture school, and uh, you know, to my to their, it was so great of them that they kind of allowed me to finish my first semester because I thought that my parents would absolutely kill me if I didn't.
1: I was just about to ask, like, how pissy your parents? They're like, you know, so Harvard, architecture school, I'm going to join this band. Uh, we're jamming at this place where there's chickens being bred up on top of them. Well, this
0: was the second time because I literally dropped out of undergraduate at Harvard to join the Modern Lovers in the second semester of my senior year. and But I was able to squeeze that semester in and graduate. So my parents had sort of been through this once but it's sort of like, how much, how long are you going to chase this? You know? Yeah. So, but anyway, so they came up to, and we did a show at the Keller in Boston and down at Lupo's, a heartbreak saloon in, in Providence where they, of course, that was a real mainstay for them because they had been going there when they were at RISD. And, and then in January of 77, when I finished the semester, I came down and we began preparations to record Talking at 77.
1: So, all right, so you you make the first record. So where was everybody's heads at diving into this one?
0: Well, the songs were written. And so for me and for them, when I joined the band, they it was, how do we integrate the next instrument? Uh, and I think that one of the decisions I made that, you might say what one of the reasons they perhaps chose me over other people that might have been trying out for them for the Talking Heads is that i never tried to show off my chops when i was trying out you might say i just tried to make the song seem fuller and bigger and add something that i thought totally was integrated into what they were doing but sometimes that meant somewhat doubling what David was doing, but maybe with the chords in a different in, inversion, sometimes doubling or going along with Tina's bass line, kind of, it, it, it was a just sort of filling out the song. I know that for David, it meant that if he broke a string when we were playing, that we didn't have to stop playing, that I could continue when there was a rhythm part playing and he could sing the song with whatever strings were still in tune and worked and, uh. So we got ready and we started the album in, I think, March of uh, '77. We then had almost finished it, but we went on a tour of Europe and Britain with the Ramones, which was one of in '77, which was just glorious. It was the weather was perfect. So many times I had possibilities of going to Europe and not gone because of some band I was in, you know, not only the Modern Lovers, but college, I mean, just various things where I was trying to pursue a music career and, and uh, you know, I was playing with these two hippies from Alabama and went down to Tuscaloosa at one point. And, you know, the, you know, the many paths you 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 could go down as you try to sort of get some footing in the music business. And, and, So I was really excited to be in Europe and we're on this van in this in this bus, playing almost every night, but going to really a thorough, thorough exploration of companies. So we went to Montpellier and we were in in Scotland and places that bands don't normally go. Maybe bands that are are from the country that want to hit every part. How are the audiences, like, towards
1: you guys? I mean, because, like, those are two bands that, you know, are so revolutionary in what they've done for music. So, I mean, did the the fans, like, appreciate? They're like, holy shit, like, we're seeing. Because I know you said a lot of musicians didn't go down there.
0: Well, I think that the big thing about the fans is that they had learned about this scene in New York often from fanzines and then, of course, going to import shops. So they were very open-minded, to liking both bands, even though we'd really were very in the end drew a very different audience. And we would go out at the end of the show with our sets to go hear the Ramones, and then the people who would come to see us would come up and start talking to us. We'd be, you know, sort of standing at the back of an auditorium. And usually we'd go out in the town with them. It was great. It was like you had an introduction. To what's the cool club in uh, Munich or what's the cool club in some little obscure town, you know, Slau or, you know, whatever, you know, and uh, it it was just great. We tried it in the United States and it didn't work at all. The Ramones fans did, could, did not want us on the bill and didn't want <laughs> to hear us. Because they were. Europeans a little...
1: get it, dude. They get it. They get music, like, especially the English. It's like all the bands that I fucking love are from England. And then in America, like, a few people know them.
0: I'm like, eh. well, well, I also, look, I think that they wanted to know what was going on in New York. And we were two examples of that. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't, they hadn't bought into, for instance, that they were a punk. And that they had, and that it's so identifying with the ethos, we'll say that is the Ramones. And, you know, it was very interesting because we, we met, you know, you know, we went to, saw the clash on that tour and we went to a party that the Sex Pistols came to. It was right when the Sex Pistols were doing, had released God Save the Queen and were going down the barge on the Thames. And, you know, the weather was spectacularly good for England. It was just a beautiful, like one of those, years they talk about where, you know. It only rained for half the day. It hardly rained at all. (laughs) Wow, then he lucked out. And June was just, you know, in the 70s and green and just great. And so that was, you know, and this is sort of a funny story. So our per diem was $5 a day in Europe and $3 a day when we were in Britain. and. It was, you know, Seymour would say, well, the promoter will provide dinner. It's like, you know, their idea of a sandwich was bread with one slice of, of ham. bone with cheese. I lived off that in Everyone's Europe. Everyone's throwing away the bread and trying to pile up some meat in the sandwiches. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, so secretly Seymour came around to the four of us and said, Here's $500 each. I know you have a little more refined taste than the Ramones, <laughs> <laughs> Cuz they can eat that. They can eat that one slice of ham and they, a piece of bread. They like were there. so excited when we got to uh to the states so they could get back to eating pizza. No, to Paris because there actually was was uh um there was McDonald's there.
1: Ah, oh, there it is. Yeah. And any American that's that's on the road in Europe, then when they finally see a Burger King is like, "Oh, thank God."
0: Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.
1: What's up everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others. Photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy. And I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there. So, so, all right, listen, let's, let's just get into the record then. Well, first of all, I got to say this. And I said this to you off air is I'm a fan of the hits of the talking heads, but this was such an enjoyable experience for my first rodeo with this band. Uh, And all I can say, and I'll get deeper into it as we get into the songs, but I get it. I 100% get it. This is a fun record with some real highlights uh, that we will talk about. So let's just dive into the first song because the the album opens with thank you for sending me an angel Uh, JT play the opening real quick First thing I wanted to ask you is about sequencing because um, sure. album, album openers are super important uh, to me and I think to most fans. So why open the record with this song? And were there any other tracks that were suggested?
0: I can't recall why, but I think that the reason why is that it was, it's such an infectious beat. Yeah, It's just, it, you immediately want to kind of start bopping around and dancing and stuff like that. You know, I almost think of it as a grooving country song to me. You know what I mean? It's, it's a it's a very it's a very major key song, and it's happy feeling. You know, and um, it's you know, and it's sort of exciting. It's like David singing is exciting is exciting, and I think it just pulls you in. You know, I mean, for instance, we used it in Stop Making Sense. You know, we'd last it all the way to Stop Making Sense as one of the songs from this record that we played it stopped making sense. It didn't mean it was necessarily the best song. It meant that it fit. It just, it had this effect on audiences. You know, don't forget that when, by the time we had done this record, we had almost every song of this record, we had played live in front of people and it had been affected by what the audience's reactions were.
1: Yeah. So, no, you're 100% right, because this song 100% pulled me in. Uh, So what I found this is about is uh, thought of as a boasting track, uh, but I've heard it's more likely about a father speaking to his young child with amazement and gratitude.
0: Is that correct? I don't have a clue. (laughs) I never, I never, I took my own explanations about what the lyrics meant, and I never sat down and asked david what he getting out if it was you know something like that particularly on at that period and about this like these songs i was i just kind of took it on face value so i i'm i don't want to comment on what people have decided it's about but i think that's but i do think that that's a lovely idea of thinking of a child as the angel you know
1: yeah um so were there any interesting uh, things about uh, recording this that, that that you know, the listeners might be interested
0: in now? Well, yeah. So this is the first of a few albums that, this is the only one that we did the entire record down at Compass Point in the Nassau. Chris Blackwell, who was very good friends with our manager, Gary Kerr had built this studio. And I believe we were the first non-Jamaican or white people to record there. And it was uh really just getting operational when we arrived. And I do have a funny story, which is sort of one of my favorite stories really, is so it was something like February in New York or something, and we had uh rented a house that Chris and Tina and I stayed in. And David had rented an apartment because there were lyrics he wanted to be he wanted to be able to go home and have the privacy to, if he wanted to work on lyrics, that there weren't other people that could bother him. So I'm going, it's freezing in New York. I think that we've already got the house. This was a few couple of, two or three days before we started. So I'm just going to go to NASA and to the house. So I booked myself on a flight to NASA, you know, thinking it'll be like the studios in New York. Well, I'll go to the studio, I'll get the keys to the house and, you know, Go stay there. So I get to Nassau and I get at a taxi and I go, I want to go to Compass Point. And they go, What's Compass Point? And you know, it's it's like it's getting it's dark now. And I'm going, It's a recording studio. And he goes, Oh, I think that might be out in Gambia Village. Okay, I'll take you there. But first of all, I have to drop off this other guy. And he was going to the exact opposite end of the island. That's always good. So we go. I'm in this taxi with, and they go to the other end of the island, And then we drive out and we pull up and you can see the wall. There's like a boat ramp and the ocean waves are coming in and there's a single light pole and you can hear chickens, again, chickens.
1: Chickens are following you. That's It's right, <laughs> yes. like a reoccurring theme.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he said, H- here it is. Get out. And it's like, there's not a light on anywhere to speak of. and. A door opens, and Robert Palmer comes out and goes, "You must be desperately in need of a cocktail." (laughs) And it was like, sort of like, "I am so happy to see you," and I had never met him before, and so I ended up actually sleeping at like a little loft over in where the maintenance for the studio was because there was no way to get in the house. And then I got in the next day, but that could have been disastrous because that could have been
1: the only way that story could have been better is if if you said, and then we both wrote simply irresistible together, dude, I, I have been in that situation where you get dropped when I got my dog The woman gave me directions. She's like, and I get to the area. I'm like, this is so shady. And she's like, yeah, just go down this dark, gravelly road. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to die. And and ended up getting a dog out of it. So and probably the best dog I've ever had. All right, so so let's move on to uh, the second track with our love. So this is my favorite part. JT, play it. I notes say that this was originally inspired by an old doo-wop song before being played in what you had commented on uh, the prior song, a galloping like
0: country style. Well, to me, this sounds more like a march. Okay. You know, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do.
1: Definitely marchy, but but I can still hear the country as well. I mean, wait, wait, wait. So, were you guys listening to country music around that time? That were that was kind of like no. So, where's that coming from?
0: You know, so, you know the the sound of the kind of you know, Chris played it with that very deliberate, straight march tempo. You know, whereas you know, thank you for sending me an angel has that drum roll and it's like rolling. This is not rolling. It's 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 definitely that four on the floor just marching down to whatever you're going to do.
1: Yeah. So, so I, this, this predates, uh, both albums and you. And in fact, it was earlier played live as a three piece with a saxophone player. And once again, this is the, these are the interpretations that I've found. Uh, I've been told maybe it's about gender politics or the unattainable perfection of love, or even how true love is not genuine.
0: You know, <laughs> Again, me trying to dive deeply into the lyrics—you've got the wrong person in the no, band. No, no, we for sure. and this will
1: be the last time I even bring that up. Morty's yeah. going to hate
0: me, but that's the last well, time. I, bring... I mean, uh, you know, I'll talk about life during wartime or something like that because you know. But uh, I think that you know, of what, uh, sort of to back up for a second, I don't. I think David's lyrics were less him trying to be exact and tried to get to be about a particular emotion, but were as much involved with the sound of the words and what the phrasing sounded like. I think he came up with uh, a, you know, found ways to put together what he considered interesting phrases that were about a subject matter, but he wasn't in a linear way, except for in a song like Life During Wartime, so, but t- telling a story or anything like that he wasn't he wasn't setting the stage was like Eddie Cochran and you know something else like there's a girl I saw a girl I really want to get to go nowhere I finally met the girl I got a job I, bought, I got a car and stuff like that and now we're you know now we're going out it's like this it's an act in three plays song David's songs were much more about a mood and a sound poem that brought you into multiple interpretations that were around, around an issue or around a feeling, but were not didactically, I don't find it a very, at least for me, not a very good path to go down to sort of didactically try and pick them apart.
1: Because you're you, cause it, what, what when you were explaining that, it reminded me, and be, it's it's not just a coincidence, but Brian Eno produced this record, and from what I've learned about Brian Eno, which we're going to talk about more later, but it's like the way that he just said words that phonetically fit the the cadence of what he was trying to say. Did was that something that was you know being rubbed off onto David? From no, Brian? I think,
0: no, I don't think that. I think he was already there. I mean these okay. lyrics were written before we met uh, before Brian was involved at all.
1: Okay. So let me ask you this. Let's talk about uh misinterpretation because I've already misinterpreted yeah, the lyrics. Yeah. But what do you think was the most in, misinterpreted thing about Talking Heads?
0: I think that in the early days when because we played with the lights on and you could see everybody in the band all the time every one of us not only had members of the audience that spent concentrated on the member that somehow piqued their interest. Obviously, Tina had a huge coterie of people that were really interested in her because she was the in a performing band. She was maybe the first performing uh, musician who wasn't the singer as well. She wasn't the sex symbol singer. She was the bass player. I mean, she's sexy and cute and all of those, but she was, and so that was, I think she was an inspiration to Kim Gordon and all of these people that came after her. And, but I think that it was pretty understandable how intertwined all of what we did came together. And David, of course, was the singer and he was the songwriter. So I think that, when we became when we got to the point that we expanded the band very often giving uh other people that we brought in maybe some of the more fun parts or better parts to play to help them stay excited and uh and the lights you know we got into more complicated lighting and so you know sometimes you could only see David and the background singers and the rest of us were largely in the dark or something like that I think that it started to uh Confu- you know, I know there were people that, like, you know, many, some people think that, like, Bernie Worrell, for instance, didn't play any of the music parts on our studio albums, except for one bass line at the end of Girlfriend is Better. But many people thought that because he saw on the live band, they saw him and stopped making sense that he'd been on the studio album. So I think that that's the, I think that's the biggest thing, that confusion came in. And I think slightly to the detriment of Chris and, Tina and I, because... Uh, It really was a band where we all really were sharing ideas and inspiring each other. I mean, look, we would have never have gotten to where we were without the sort of unusual sensibility that David had. And David's, David's an amazing lyricist and, you know, and to begin with, and an amazing singer as well as just a fantastic rhythm guitar player. So... Uh, you know, and and Chris's drumming—I I rave about it all the time. He just has a a joyful beat that you want to join in on. And when we were talking about the beginning of these, of thank you for sending me the angel, or, or with the with your love, or with his uh, that you you just want to get up and dance to it. You know, he he's one of those people that. That you just, and he's a very, he's, he also, you know, very much keeps it simple. He's never is trying to show off with his drumming. Not a lot, you know, you don't have him playing drum rolls all the time. Very unlike most drummers who kind of want to show off their chops, so to speak.
1: For sure. For yeah. sure. Uh, no, and you you made a great point because Chris and Tina, you know, I'm not going to say they're the stars of this record, but it's almost like the drums and the bass are just so prevalent in every song. And that's usually what gets people dancing. You know what I mean? Um, well, they, were,
0: they were a really great team. And, you know, Tina, it, you know, also is a very unique style on the bass, you know. I mean, David um, was involved in 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 helping her to develop as a bass player, very involved. And so she was very influenced by some of what he thought about. But then, you know, the more we started doing stuff, she came up with her own parts and she just had a, a totally unique style. And it might not have worked in another band, but it really worked well in this band. That's why one of the other things about bands is you really see this in, in bands with superstars where you're, there's too many, the people are too good, So they start stepping on each other and it gets too complicated. It gets too, you know, you want to be able to, you don't always want to hear four contrapuntal things going on at the same time. Just, you know, for sure. You know, also, I always felt of myself as sort of like in baseball, the utility player. Yeah. You know, I could play guitar, I could play keyboards, which is, I had played keyboards for much longer. I was certainly much more fluid as a keyboard player, but. You know, I always chose what's going to make the song sound best. And that's how I chose what I was going to play. And I also enjoyed the fact that on stage, it's really great to be play guitar and be able to kind of walk around and be able to, you know, keyboards do lock you down, so to speak. Oh, my God, yeah. Unless you have a guitar. Did you yeah. ever go the keytar route? I tried it. Uh, on a solo tour for a couple of songs, and i at a certain point, I could see how people got into it, but it just looks sort of stupid to me. It
1: does, one hundred percent. I'm trying to convince my friend Avery to get a keyboard because he's a piano comic. I'm like, dude, you got to
0: move around, bro. Get the tar, yeah. dude. Or, you know, like Edgar winner was one of the first. He used the keyboard from the ARP twenty six hundred when he was and would walk around doing Frankenstein.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to go on a long YouTube journey into guitar players. <laughs> All right, uh, the good thing. All right, so this is what I've read, okay? Byrne challenged himself to write this as a badly translated communist Chinese anthem. And lyrically, it does have a very proletariat feel to it. So here, play the chorus. the chorus. The,
0: hard, fight the good, Well that was exactly right. That song is the communist Chinese song.
1: Yeah, dude, because as the heart finds the good thing, the feeling is multiplied, add the will to the strength, and it's equal conviction as we economize, efficiency is multiplied. I mean, dude, I can hear Mao Zedong saying that.
0: It, absolutely. Absolutely. I thought that's I thought that song was brilliant because I, I had been involved in leftist politics during the Vietnam War and I certainly I knew the the well the it was called the progressive labor party that were very influenced by mao and they they would spout these sayings uh you know the the you know the peasantry shall rise from the countryside the you know yeah 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 you <laughs> know uh, and the and so i i thought that song was really brilliant it oh, is i love uh, it I in love uh That was a song that actually was absolutely the lyrics and the whole thing was conceptual to feel uh, that it served a greater purpose and everything else had to like fall in line to, you know, it was, uh, well, you know about how this happened in Soviet painting, you know, like at the beginning of the revolution, there was such incredible, uh, uh, you know, painters in Russia, but eventually they became very, very, Old fashioned and kind of returned to like, you know, portraits of Stalin, and you couldn't have abstract art anymore because it didn't serve the interest of the state.
1: Sure. Something that I find uh, to serve the interest of the state, and tell me if this is true or not, but the backup vocals were attributed to Tina and the typing pool because with a lack of female. So, and so, so these are basically all the secretaries and receptionists at the studio. I mean, how dope is that just to be sitting there like, I'm his HR. Wait, they need me in the booth. I just, I mean, was that like just like a spur of the moment thing or is it just, was he always trying to incorporate everybody that was around him?
0: No, it's just, we decided, uh, that we wanted background parts, women background. And that when they were the only women there, but I also think that, um, Brian would go chat up the, uh, women who worked at the office. So he, was delighted to go and to ask them and enlist them to join in.
1: Especially during a communist song. It's like no, we all do our part. We all have to for the greater good. (laughs) Did you ever want to be in like a conventional rock and roll band?
0: Uh well I wouldn't have rejected it. (laughs) Um you know, I had a f- – there was, you know, Aerosmith and <laughs> and uh, uh, the Modern Lovers were coming up out of Boston at the same time, and they were friends of ours. And when the Modern Lovers sort of ex- imploded, it was sort of like, God, it would be kind of cool to play with Aerosmith, you know. At first, my feeling about Aerosmith was that they were – some kind of weird mixture of the Stones and the Yardbirds, and I, stylistically, I didn't find them that unique. Later, I started to understand how funky, how much funkier they were. And I, you know, when they did the "Walk This Way" with Run DMC, I'd been saying when rap came along, it just sounds like S- Steven Tyler's lyrics. You know, how many how many lyrics can we cr- crowd in? And I, you know, I'd go see them at Boston Garden and go like. God, this looks like a lot of fun. So, but I, I do think, and, you know, this is actually, there's been some things subsequent to uh, even the music business, but I think as a producer also, I very often ended up being paired with, you might say, unique, brilliant musicians who other people might find difficult. Gordon Gano of the of the violent fems being a perfect example. Um, I, I think that I got known is that I knew how to get, draw the best out of people that maybe the record company had no clue how to, to, uh, actually deal with. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, I think it's a, ta- I, and I've actually, in some of the companies I've been involved with, in, I think I have a very good gift of helping people sort of, uh, realize their own dreams but also you know clarify what what they're doing to the outside world sure yeah sure
1: um all right moving on to warning sign yep uh i right, play the intro I love this groove intro, and that takes up one-third of the song, which is a great way to start. Um, this also reminds me of Scatterbrain by Radiohead, uh-huh. and that is so cool to hear the influence on them. Here, just so everybody knows, uh, JT, do you have Scatterbrain?
0: Uh-huh. What are your thoughts
1: on that? I mean, just to see who's been influenced by Talking Heads. Well,
0: you know that Radiohead's name came from the song Radiohead. that's on True Stories. I did not know that. Yeah. And so they obviously were fans of the Talking Heads. Uh, the, I think that warning sign is, is a perfect example of when you mentioned Eno. So those delays on the drums were something that Eno added. And, you know... I think it's one of the reasons why it it uh was something that we you wanted to listen to longer because he was messing with the delays and so therefore it had an organic cuz one of the things he would do in this record is work with equipment within the studio that would transform one one of the parts coming in on the fly and it really show we had, we really had to be in the position that we trusted him enough because sometimes you'd come in and what you had played was not what you, exactly what you heard. And, uh, but it it also, I think, was a great, taught all of us, and that when we went on to produce uh, uh, Toggy Heads records or our solo records influences, that we under, began to understand that the studio and the control room was an extension of the musical instruments. They were instruments in their own right and that you know i'm old enough that i kind of remember the feeling of when you look at the early beatles sessions where the people are in white lab coats in the room that the musicians are sometimes never allowed into or they can only come in for the brief moment to hear the playback and then they're kicked out because that's where the expensive equipment is and i think that eno very early You know, also being never spent the time to become like a great technician on an instrument. His instrument was always the combination of effects and the things he did to change things. And he brought that that experimental and that just that approach to the recording process. I
1: wanted to talk about warning signs. So we've all heard that the band found out that David was leaving when you read it in the newspaper. So did anyone see the warning signs before that, or is it really just that surprising?
0: Well, I'm not saying it was surprising. We're talking about after we had stopped, we stopped touring in 84. We made our last record in 88, our last studio album. And there had always been the sort of talk and hope, you might say, that we would tour again, And but we were enjoying making records together. Uh, and so I think that... When David basically said in an interview that the band was over, he just got frustrated by people asking him over and over again, when are we seeing another Talking Heads tour? And it was sort of like, well, that really, I've moved on. We've moved on. But, you know, I had an active producing career. I was getting into producing by that time. I was working on solo records. Um, It was it wasn't like a, like a shock. <laughs> it was sort of, you might say, uh, you know, just finally coming out and saying, you know, it wasn't, a, a, a you know, it wasn't cutting something in half. It was like slowly just sort of ripping apart or dripping, drifting apart, whichever way you want to think about it.
1: Hey everyone. This is Tuck from fit for a King and off-road minivan. What's up everyone, this is Jay Reason and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo aka Lord Ezak interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip hop scenes and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, LA street photographer Estevan Oriel, Jimmy G from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law and pro wrestler Vampiro to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. So is there ever like, uh, like a sit down or it's just at that time you're just like, oh, OK, I guess we're, we're we are. Well, it makes sense. And then I'm just going to move on.
0: There had been other sit downs when we had had some sort of issues between each other earlier. But I, I think Chris and I think Chris may have called him up. I don't I can't really recall. There was no like let's have a band meeting and discuss this. Um, you know, I I actually, I guess it wasn't important enough for me to like have this great recollection of it. I just, you know, it was, uh, I had by that point, my, I had had to go out to Milwaukee to take care of my, my father died suddenly. And I started to split my time half and half between New York and Milwaukee, which is why I ended up making Casual Gods in Milwaukee and then going on and I found a studio that I really liked and an engineer, and the price was fantastic. So, you know, I produced the Violence Femmes there, but I also produced a band that a lot of people don't know I produced because I got pissed off and ended up, my name ended up getting taken off of it because I didn't use the mix I used called It's Immaterial, a song called Driving Away From Home. That was a hit in England. Top 10. Is this, is that, is,
1: wait, is this like a 500 podcast exclusive? Are we getting like something? Nobody will know this unless... Very few people would know it. Dude, an exclusive. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, I was already... I was having to deal with the realities of life. You know, I mean, I was taking care of my mother who had cancer, who then passed away. And I'd found this... You know, I inherited my parents' house. And... I found that I kind of liked being out in a situation where there was less pressure on uh, getting in and out of the studio on these budgets that that the record companies had. And one of the things I kind of really understood with the kind of bands that I was being given is that having a few, having more time to record them meant that you got better, much better records that they needed to be able to have some time to explore Yeah. And things didn't always go. It's already worked out. We did it all in pre-production and bang, it's, you do it in 10 days. Yeah. And so I, you know, that became sort of uh, included in, you might say my production style of how I worked is I started bringing bands to Milwaukee just because we could get twice as, we could have twice as much studio time in the, in the budgets that we were given. Also, no chickens in Milwaukee. No chickens, but I did meet my wife there as well. So it was I a-
1: mean, that's, yeah, dude, get rid of the chickens. Chickens are an omen. Yeah. Chickens have been an omen for us. That's, that's Wives, right. perfect. That's right, yes. All right, so in speaking of, of ladies, the next song is The Girls Wanna Be With The Girls. So I've read, <laughs> I always feel like I have to give that disclaimer right off the jump. So I've read that this has been misinterpreted by the LGBTQ community as being about lesbianism but it actually celebrates healthy and supportive female relationships.
0: Yes, should I, should, I, I, am I right? I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. I think it was an observation. The song had been was written when I joined the band and we just didn't include it on the first record, but when we played it live, a lot of songs that were already had been written. We played in the show touring for talking at 77 and you know, I was becoming more, Uh, integrated into the whole sound of the band and the songs evolved with audiences listening to them. I mean, there's just nothing better for a band than to go on a tour. And, you know, we, those tours where we play two shows a night in clubs. So you're, have to have a lot of songs and you're playing usually for sometimes more than, you know, four hours a night. And your, you know, your chops just get that much better, and your communication between each other gets better. So the girls want to be with the girls. I always understood it; it was something like an observation that David had when he was at RISD, is like looking at it and going, "Well, they've got something they want to talk about, and they don't really want us guys around when they're talking about." It. There's, you know, maybe girl material, and just as guys want to have have guy material, and they don't really want. Girls, they you know, they want to be able to go piss on a tree at the same time and maybe make a joke that would be, uh, Dirt off off color. Off, yeah, off, potentially off color. Yes. Yeah.
1: Lip blue. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. so I read. I read. Tina had a conversation about the subject with David, and then later was surprised that the lyrics were basically exactly what they had been discussed. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about, I want to talk about uh, the dynamic of the band because with Tina and Chris as a couple and David as the chief songwriter, did you ever have difficulty with that band dynamic? Uh,
0: I think that, well, I think that it could, it was, a, it could be frustrating to David and me that <clears throat> on decisions the band needed to make that, so often Chris and Tina had discussed it in advance and then they voted, you might say as a block. Yeah. And whereas David and I were, whenever we were having the discussion, we felt we were open-minded when we first came, we got to it. And yet the best we could do is tie. <laughs> if we agree. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is somewhat funny. It's like, I, I had this um uh, I had you know there were a number of things that I got very involved in like helping the band decide and get a manager they didn't have a manager in the beginning and we had gone through that in the modern lovers to a disastrous effect now Talking Heads were more together about their business than the modern lovers they were older and more sophisticated about it But I said, we have to have a manager, especially when we're on the road. We have to have someone doing our business and interacting. And I kind of, we're not going to get away with, it's going to hurt us in the end if we don't have one. And so I also brought up, I said, it may be a bad thing that we have the potential for ties. I mean, with David singing and writing the songs, would it make sense that he gets two votes? Yes, but
1: yeah, now think I like about, this math, by the way. <laughs> OK,
0: so what what does that mean? If David gets two votes,
1: he gets two votes because they're the because Chris and Tina are a block. And so you are the deciding. Oh, dude, you're the
0: Kamala Harris, bro. I'm the person who decides everything. Oh, my God. How much do you love that power? <laughs> well, it didn't happen. And oh, it, oh, did, that's it didn't happen, and I'm not sure that anyone saw my Machiavellian mind working about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but anyway. you, you would end every, every, you'd say something. He was like, We're eating at Chick fil A tonight. So it is said, so it is written. I yeah. have spoken. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Um, all right. Uh, found a job. This is a great song. Uh, the highlight for me is the 45, like minute and 45 second outro groove. Um, just so what I've read is with messages about doing what one's one loves, not wasting creativity. Burn, as the narrator describes a couple that's so bored by what's on TV that they make their own show, which becomes a hit and strengthens their relationship. And this idea was formed in the aftermath of David's father, who was an electrical engineer, wanting him to go to Carnegie Mellon University. But David chose the artistic path to the Rhode Island School of Design. His argument expressed the merits of creative collaboration. Um, am I right?
0: Well, I have no idea that it had any His his, how his childhood uh, affected it. I, you are definitely right that it's about people being bored, but I don't think it's just a couple. I think it's the whole family, and so when they talk about, I can't remember the guy's name who's scouting out locations. It's like a family affair of let's not just make home movies. Let's make a movie, and let's let's do it together. We'll, it it will be it'll be fun, and I'm not even sure that success was is is in the lyrics about that. It's it becomes something more than the joy of just doing it together and then looking at what you created.
1: Um, all right, here, let's, let's move on to artists only. Um, so this is another ode to creativity. This is also from before you were in the band. I found this to be interesting. The lyrics were originally a poem by a friend and fellow Rhode Island school of design classmate, Wayne Zeeve, who also suggested the band name talking heads.
0: Yes. And we used to go over to his house to use the swimming pool. Out in New Jersey, I think it was his parents' house. Sometimes.
1: Oh, dude, a friend has a pool. Come on, man. In in like those areas, like Maryland, Pennsylvania, that oh, come on. Um. So so I I play the clip because I want to. This this is I don't know if you've ever seen Dave Matthews Band scat singing. Um. But there's a moment of this song that reminded me of that, and I just want I just want to play JT play the play the part from from uh, Artists Only. Nick made this did these did these weird edits. He does all this shit with like Trump, and he found this clip of Dave Matthews scat singing. And, it, and to me, it's one of the funniest things in the world.
0: Uh
1: Was that apt, or is that completely the most offensive no, no, thing I've I, ever done? I think that's
0: quite quite apt, and I think that. Uh, I you know I can't remember quite the expression it is but he he said that so many of David's lyrics were like I'm doing this style I'm doing this. you know this sort of wearing a kimono too almost out of breath like uh, you know these phrases flung at you you know that it was this really unique style and, you know and David over the years progressed into learning how to be a a crooner as well you know but uh this song to me embodied the influence of being painters and going to art school on the on the on music because the different parts of the song to a certain degree bear no relationship to each other and i felt that this was very much like trying to create drama in abstract painting where you had really discordant imagery to, for effect. And, and that this jarring juxtaposition was uh, what the painting was about and then what the song was about. And uh, I think that talking heads had that all laced through their music, but this song embodied that the most. And when I joined the band, One of the things I felt I did was, at certain times, connect those pieces a little better for the audience to for for it to flow. But I, I did, you know, I did wonder if I was spoiling something unique about them if I was by round by you know you might say by rounding the edges. You know, I wouldn't say that I was rounding the edges. I was saying I would be connect, creating a connect, connective tissue between these really discordant parts. But Artist Only" is the most dramatic version of a song like that of the Talking Heads. I have one story about this: is that when we played this on Saturday Night Live, I had a Prophet Five synthesizer that had just come out, and you know, synthesizers are such that if you do one preset it can sound like a horn and another one sounds more string like, but one can be a bell or a sound like someone pissing, or it can be and as we went on, the the tech the technicians that were part of the union technicians on the on the at Saturday Night Live made it so I couldn't hear what I was playing or could the audience or David and Chris and Tina. But, you know, 80 million people in the country could hear it. And so, you know, it's like, it's sort of like I'm pressing this button and I'm pressing this button and I'm doing this and I sure hope I don't hit the wrong button because it's going to be so awful. (laughs) You know, it was, it was, and if you look at the clip, you'll see me right before we going on, I'm looking around and trying to see is there something, is there something here? It's like, I can't hear myself. What is going on here? And, and, you know, it was a very, uh, tense moment. I am
1: watching that clip. The second, this interview is done because I am so excited to see, I mean, if you could see it, if I notice one little, like movement of the eyes on your face, I'm like, Oh dude, he's in it. He's freaking out, dude. Yeah. Um, yep. I wanted to ask you this because the band had such a short but very active career prior to you joining. Um, When did you first feel like an official member of
0: Talking Heads? I mean, they made me feel pretty comfortable. Um, I would say that once we, that I would, certainly the Ramones tour. I mean, even playing, making the first album quite a bit, but the Ramones tour where we went and played every night. You know, it's like, this is the new, this is the band now. Yeah. This is not, you know, that was the band. This is the band. How did that feel? Being on that
1: tour, not to cut you off, but how did that make you feel to be, because they were calling you punk by association. Yeah. How did that feel? I mean, and then finish the thought. I didn't mean to cut you off because you were on it.
0: Well, you know, I was perfectly happy by being called punk. I didn't think it was a great description. I found that new wave to be a, uh, such a bland term, it drove me nuts. I mean, and yeah. of course, it was sort of stolen from the New Wave cinema that was French you New know, Wave, yeah. Yeah, Jean ashamed, Jean- Ed yeah, Godard and you know, Eric Romer. I took a class and, that.
1: It was the most boring film class I've ever taken in my life. Yeah. So I,
0: <laughs> and they were all like really influenced by Hitchcock, but that's another story. But anyway. Sure, sure, sure. And so I didn't like New Wave very much either. I always I am of the opinion that the first really punk band was the Modern Lovers. Uh, you could many people would say the Stooges, and the, with the great influence of the Velvet Underground. But I, to me, what punk means was it was going against where mu- the music business had been going, which was it was getting professional. So you started having musicians who had gone to the academy. And especially in England, you had the Prague movement coming out with these songs that were 12 minutes long with its capes and all this crap. And punk was about no, I want to tell this, I want to be as short and sweet and get a point across. And I felt that punk music was if you have something you want to express, find the means to express it. And it's not all about. You, uh, how much time you spent practicing your instrument. In fact, that there are sometimes advantages if you just learned your instrument because you play it in a different way. Uh, both in the Modern Lovers and the Talking Heads, when we were writing songs, sometimes we would trade instruments and get that sort of naivete that, and sometimes we'd actually use it on the records, but no, not no, not normally. We certainly didn't do it live. Although in the Modern Lovers, I actually would play drums on Pablo Picasso for. A lot of times, and David played bass, and it wasn't until we got to recording it, and after doing one take, I was worn out, and we had to do another take, and so then David taught me the bass part. So, and then you, if you listen to Pablo Picasso, which is such a magnificent song, and John Cale's piano part is so brilliant that you can hear the bass part. I'm going like do 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 do. But by the end of it, it's like it's like you can hear the you can hear how tired my forearm has just gotten. <laughs> <laughs> so so I didn't mind. So we shared that with the Ramones and all of the CBG band CBGB bands is that we're not about artifice. We're not about grandiosity. We're about simplicity and straightforward and to the point. And so. I thought it was fine that we were part of that movement, but I think that the term punk, what it kind of, how it kind of grows out of what punk meant in the fifties certainly didn't apply to us. And, and so that's why people felt some desire that they needed sure. to come up with something else. So you mentioned
1: the modern lovers and we're doing that next week. And I was talking to my, my writer Morty and we were talking about how, and, I'm, and if I fuck this up, just please correct me. But we were talking about how the the album that we're doing for Modern Lovers was like a series of demos that you did four years prior to it being released. And then it gets released and people are like, holy shit, what the fuck is this? But by and if I'm wrong, were you already by that point with the talk with Talking Heads?
0: No, it was released in the beginning of 1976. So it just it's one of the reasons that they were interested in me as a potential keyboard player. Was hearing the sound of what I played on that record and thinking that that would work with them.
1: So, 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 when did officially? Because from my understanding, Jonathan didn't want to make that style of music anymore. He wanted to do these more softer. I don't want to call them love songs per se, but just unlike Modern Lovers.
0: Well, so when we did those, what became the first Modern Lovers, which was in this? I think the spring of 1972, we recorded those. Um, Jonathan was still feeling his, what I would call, I I think that Jonathan and Gordon Gaino are the two writers who most effectively uh, captured what I would call teenage angst. But I think that Jonathan became, he grew up a little bit, you might say, or he he became, uh, um, he didn't want to be so angry. He didn't want to be complaining. He had other things he wanted to say. And he also got into this... Jonathan was always obsessed by, you know, Caruso, who could fill a room, didn't need a microphone or a PA. He took lessons from an opera singer named Dante. Dante something or other. and, And he always wanted to be like Dante. So he loved this idea of making it quiet that he could walk away from the microphone and fill the room with his voice. So that's why... He graduated into, you know, wanting to make sure that he gets very upset when he's at a bar and there's uh, the clinking of the glasses at the back. And I just did another record with Jonathan last year, and we were going to do one when COVID struck where it's called SA, S-A. So you should check that out if you're doing the monologue. Yeah, it's a really fantastic record. If you can't find it, get back in touch with me. I'll get it to you. For sure, We've,
1: it's it's so funny that that with this episode and then next week being modern lovers because the only real song that I know besides the stuff that Jonathan did on like there's something about Mary but was was from in Roadrunner. Uh, we just did MIA Kala. And she basically takes the road, run, a road, run, like the whole, basically all the lyrics in one of her songs, which then got me to look at that. My curious question was, were you like, when, when the Modern Lovers dissolved, I mean, was, was that, was that a shock to you or was it just like, you know, was it like, no, this is, it's time. Cause I want to get a little inside scoop for next week. I haven't done the research on next week yet, but I want to. It was
0: sort of like, we reached the point. Uh, I reached the point is like, Jonathan's wanting to play so quietly and so that there stopped really feeling like there was room for expression for me. So I was sort of over it by that point.
1: All right, moving on. Uh so I'm not in love which I'm not and I'm really lonely right now during covid. So this is David's anxious and unironic desire for a world that has outgrown the politics of human interactions like love and sex. Uh this is another song like that that I I totally heard Radiohead. So play 103 from this. <laughs> Now, play the intro to Bangers and Mash from Radiohead. And in concert, and it all makes sense once you told me that they got their name from, uh, from one of your songs, Tom York even shouts pretty like David does at the beginning. Should they be paying you royalties? Mm. They should give you one of their cottages.
0: Uh, that would have been great. <laughs> or if they'd had me produce one of their albums, that would have been nice too. So you,
1: should, you know what? I I bet you could take they, Nigel and you could take uh, Nigel in a fist fight for sure, dude. Nigel yeah, Godrich. Yeah, but him. he does he
0: does a really great job. So it's like I you know I got no complaints of what they're doing. So um, for sure. this song was always a favorite live. Oh, I like get that. And this was a song. This and maybe "Love Goes to Buildings on Fire," where in the long jams at the end where I was getting better and better as a guitar player by being at the talking heads. Cause it was the first time that I was in a band that was playing all the time and I was playing guitar sufficiently to be getting better every night. And so I was really growing as a guitar player while in the talking heads. And so the interplay in some of the live versions of this, you know, a couple of years later before, right, say, like, particularly on, say, the tour for the Fear of Music before we made the big band, I'm Not in Love was a big song at the end of our show where David and I would be kind of making noises and doing, working off each other. And in the way it was the closest, and also on Love Goes to Building on Fire, I was the closest I thought we got to, say, Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd, although they're very different than we were, where... It was just a wonderful intertwining nature of how the guitars work together, and uh now I didn't think of I always thought of this song is a little bit like everyone's too obsessed about love there's more important things in life than your that your love life It's not like it's not important, but that the the modern world has has elevated it to be the end all and be all, and you know you look at all the other cultures about you know in europe marriages it certainly amongst the upper classes was about family power, and love sometimes was there and but it was not always the same kind of love, and particularly uh sexual attraction sometimes had nothing to do with it, and so I think that David saw that that and that also popular music has been part of this uh selling of romantic love as the as so part and parcel in the only way in our culture, and that you sort of and, and don't feel bad about it, so it's sort of like don't feel bad about yourself. There's other, there's so many other examples of cultures where this way that we've chosen now, it was different then. So I, I I saw of it as a world, his world picture is like my work is more important to me than my love life.
1: No, that kind of goes along with my question because where rock and roll has always been like synonymous with sex and especially in the 70s, mm-hmm. but Talking Heads via David always seemed to establish a cool distance from that lifestyle. So was there ever any crazy debauchery backstage? Like, or was it like the after parties just rocking or?
0: Uh, Well, having a woman in the band. Yeah. That changes the dynamic. This is, is is (laughs) affects that. Um, I think that the most, it was not backstage or anything like that, but there were when the band expanded to 10 people and we we were a touring party of 20 you know we were an instant party if we went anywhere I can imagine and so and so, if there was ever a time where as long as we were all had a little more money, so if there was anything that one would call more like uh, talking uh, you know uh rock and roll lifestyle it was it was on those tours
1: was there who was was and when you got to that twenty person you know show. Uh, who 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 partied the, I don't want to even give anything, call anybody out, but was there any wild men like like the piccolo player or something? Like, dude, this guy Frank yeah, on the
0: well, I mean, well, Chris was Chris was a part a, a great partier who ha- had the great ability to be able to pace himself. Oh God, I so that he could go, like he could go on forever. I was a little bit much more of blackout. we're <laughs> so, not just blackout, but just. Go in so intensely, and then like I gotta stop. I gotta go hold it. you know, you know. Um, but you know, Chris and Tita were a. You know, I was. I would say that certainly. That the that, that period was the most, uh, you know. You know, look meeting girls and things like that for me during that period, and and having you know Steve Scales and Busta Jones and on on the other Man in Light tour and you know, Bernie to a degree and stuff like that. There was always someone on guy, well, let's let's go on and see what trouble we can get in, so to speak. Uh, having been this, when I did Casual Gods, I really understood how David had to be, like when you're the singer in the band, you have to be so much more cautious about that because it really takes a toll on your voice. Um, I, I, think, I think both Dave Davies and... Uh, um, there's some other brother combinations who might even be uh black crows, black crows, maybe Noble Gallagher. I'm not sure which of the Gallagher's be like, Oh my God, I know I can sing great. I'm, I'm just as good a singer, but I didn't want, I wanted to be able to out, go out and party and be able to play just fine the next day.
1: <laughs> yeah. Trust me. I completely understand. I mean, you very similar in the way we partied. Um, all right, stay hungry. Uh, which is so funny because as soon as I saw that the title, I was like, "Oh, that's like the the movie from the seventies with Jeff Bridges and and Arnold Schwarzenegger." Which is funny because lyrically, uh, I read because I first I thought it was Eno's oblique strategies cards with the lyrics, but it actually came from a bodybuilding magazine Chris read. Uh, which likely referred to the title of the movie uh, with Schwarzenegger and Jeff Bridges and uh, Sally Field. One thing I love about this is the minute-long instrumental break. I think this is is probably my favorite part on the on the record. Uh, play thirty-seven seconds in, JT. break, but that
0: part is my favorite
1: part of the song. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on this? Uh, you know, do you have any stories about the song? Or
0: well, the part that you like with that sort of uh, string-like synthesizer line that rises through—that was something that Eno wrote, and then I then I played that live, and you know, it gave a sort of calm contrapuntal thing to the sort of hyperkinetic nature of the, of talking heads. Again, it was a big favorite live. It was, when I played it live, it was a challenge because there were lots of sounds. So it was like, move here, do this, move here, do, you know, it was, um, I mean, we did it, you know, before I had a synthesizer, so I was using an organ or something like that, but there were, there was a sense of, of having to really be ready to, get your hands to play the right part. And also if you had to make a sound change to have time to push the button to get there, you know, it was a, uh, you had to plot out your course to make it work.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up Inu because I want to really focus on him for Take Me to the River. Uh, So this is the sole single from the record. Uh, It's about a baptism and an exorcism through a bad relationship. It was originally by Al Green from 78 uh, it's been covered by so many artists. Uh, this one reached 26 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S., which was both Talking Heads and the song by any artist's highest chart success at that point. And that includes a version by Eno's old bandmate, Brian Ferry. And I read uh, that you guys have been playing the song at gigs for a while. And and then you get to the studio and I just love how you slowed this down as much as possible without losing the groove and the drive. This is definitely my favorite song on the record. Uh, This is probably my favorite part. Peter, play it. Lapsed so hard. Uh, One thank you for for writing that. Well, for for recording it. Um, And uh, any thoughts on this? Because I've got so much information about it. Well, uh, well,
0: one thing that was interesting is that, first of all, this was a hit at AM radio, not FM radio for Talking Heads. hmm. Which is, you know, it was right when FM was taking over. When we were out for Talking Heads 77, we would... It was the time in FM radio where every uh, DJ would have wind chimes. And we would get comments like, well, I really hate this punk music, but basically I think I like you guys the best of all of those awful bands that are coming out of CBGB. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was a hit on AM. We released it, Brian Ferry released it. Foghat released it and maybe even Levon Helm released it all within a few couple of months of each other. So it was a rate every, a lot of people had recognized that this was a great song and that could be used as a rock song and, or as a different song. Now, Teeny Hodges of the, was a co-writer on this song from Memphis. He and the Hodges brothers, uh, the Reverend Charles Leroy and Teenie Hodges were the high high rhythm section. And I don't know if you've seen the movie that I w- that I'm a producer of called Take Me to the River. Have you it's seen it? It's
1: the, about the Memphis hip-hop scene? I haven't seen it, but uh, but Morty was telling me
0: about it. It's a well, I really recommend you and the audience see it. It's about the what happened to Stax Volt and High Records, which was uh uh Willie Mitchell's studio. And basically in the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King, all of these things splintered and fell apart and kind of wrecked Memphis as a town. Apparently in the fifties, Memphis was considered one of the nicer places to bring up kids and to live in the country. And it went to becoming a very, you know, there was white flight to the suburbs. And even the companies that have come there like FedEx, they're out at the airport. They're not And uh, so the, and so the movie introduces R and B singers and old R and B singers to rappers and neither have heard of each other. You know, it's the continuation of music in Memphis, but with this disconnect and we became the connection to pull them together. And then they would do a performance together. It's a wonderful movie, very uh, uniquely different because it's new performances it does not only rely on like found footage to be really interesting, which almost every other music documentary, you know, a lot of times I feel like if you look at the Funk Brothers, there's some version of the guys getting together and playing again, but it's always nothing compared to how exciting it was when you look at the found footage. Whereas, the, whereas Take Me to the River is in the studio with, you know, Frazier boy, with Bobby Rush or little peanut with Otis clay or William Bell and Snoop dog, or, you know, it was, so it's, it's, however, what I, what was interesting is I've gone and there was a touring act. And so I got to play, take me to the river with, uh, actually all three of them, teeny Charles and, uh, Leroy teeny died. After the with the show after the uh sort of premiere of this of the film at South by Southwest, we had a huge outdoor con and uh he passed away a couple of months later. But it, the version playing with them, it's all on the upbeat. And A, there's some slightly different chords, and the changes are at a different time to how Talking Heads plays it. And I attribute this to David taught me the song, and I never listened to the original. I just I just played it with David and Kristen. And, and so our song is again, it's a slow march and it's on the beat, you know, right? Whereas the other one is, and it's like this all the time, and it's a totally different. And the original is brilliant, but ours was like it also had really made ours. It's like a wasn't copying, except for same, but it was uniquely ours because. And I think that you know, it's, it's probably the song that my the organ. Is the loudest that dominates more than any other talking head song. And, you know, it's it's built around the organ part, not around the guitar parts, which most of the other songs are. So, so uh,
1: love the organ. First of all, I love I can't tell you how much I love this song. Um, And what I read was to achieve the effect of the song getting louder as it progressed. Producer Brian Eno ran the song into a limiter and slowly increased the intensity until it became squashed into sounding louder. Now, uh, being that you're uh, a producer as well and you worked with Eno several times, and this is what's so crazy is that we've been doing. Fuck, we've probably done 114 episodes. Brian Eno, we've done two of his records that were just him. We've done Roxy Music. He's produced a few of the records. It's probably the fourth or fifth album that he's produced. So I wanted
0: to ask you, what do you think you learned the
1: most from those experiences?
0: Well, the one thing I also wanted to say that he added Please. to this song is he added those kind of... those kind of like going but with like echo on it. Yeah. This, uh, he called them epi events, epi meaning very short, <laughs> like an epi pen, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he was very, so he thought there needs to be something here. I'm going to, um, and he did that. I don't kn- I did not know that about the compressor. And I don't know if he did that at the mastering lab or if he did it during the mix. I don't recall him doing it during the mix because he was, we were, you know, this is back in the days before automation. So many of us had our hands on the board, but largely Rhett Davies and Brian on the faders. And, you know, one of us, like there's some, there's this one part, go up to that mark and then pull it down at the right time, (laughs) you know? um, So I think he's probably, he did it at the mastering lab to To try and do that, and but what if have you i mean how what have you taken from working with Brian well like, the first the own? first thing was that the entire studio is an instrument to be used in the creation of the music is not a sort of a the slate that you it's not the canvas that you're painting on it's part of the composition itself, and also experimentation is good and it's fine. If it takes longer, keep experimenting until you get what you want. And, uh, you know, he, he had like, you know, he did have his oblique strategies. Did he use them? Yeah. Once in a while, once in a while. The other one is if you really can't think of anything, he would smoke pot Nice. and he would say, but you only will get one idea and then you do it, and then you have to go home for the rest of the day because then you're wrecked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one thing I learned from him that I don't that I actually would sometimes fought against, like uh at at and Dave Jordan and I would then ganged up on him with on Remain and Light, was he's very impatient. And so Sometimes you know that you it could be better, and like Dave Jordan would say, Brian would say, "Just put the t- just play the tape. It's just a guide." And Dave would go, "Brian, it's never just a guide with you. You finally go. You always go. That's fine. Let's just move on." Yeah. So I quit unless <laughs> I have enough time that I can get a sound that I am proud of, and that's all there is to it. And then Brian also wanted to roll the tape at fifteen minutes fifteen IPS, which is can be good for the low end, but makes less clear high end. And Dave and I said, no, we want to run at 30 IPS. And and Eno said, like, oh, but it takes so long to rewind. And it's sort of like, well, we want it to sound good. <laughs> but you know, he's he's uh yeah, well, that's what I really took from him. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd have ever become a producer, had I not spent a, cu- a couple of times being there every day and working with EDL, sometimes just watching, sometimes being actively involved. And just, you know, it, it's easy to see a job as being something mysterious that is beyond you, I mean, I don't think musicians have this anymore because they all have their own home studios, so they all have know what a compressor is now, and they know what EQ is. Sometimes it's wrecked them because they always have an idea about everything, and you know they don't have the experience that other people do. And uh, but you know, he made the studio feel a fun and like we're going to like it's 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 part of the creative. It's part of the whole creation. I love that.
1: I love that. I know I wanted to ask you this because you've, you've produced so many albums. What what album that you've produced have you felt has been the most Eno-esque where you were like, I, oh my God, I'm channeling Brian right now. Oh, hmm. did you ever wear a kimono? That's, that's the main thing. No. <laughs> okay. I didn't no, think so. You no, 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 I never no but it. you would look good in a
0: kimono. I think, but, you know, some absolutely. people can pull it off. Yeah, absolutely. I could. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good idea. Um, I do know that when I was doing the Vi- Violent Femmes record, that there it was the beginning of when there were digital tools in the studio. And I w- had learned a lot about them. And we had, what did we, I had already, we'd already moved on into Remain in Light and beyond, but uh, that I was really, uh, you know, what I was, actually, I think it's, I'm going to say, it's not the violent films. I would say it's when I started doing uh, my solo albums, that his idea of, you know, I was producing them myself, is that the studio was part and parcel to, the, to what I was doing. And I was usually playing all of my parts sitting in the control room, now out, out in the other room. And so it was about, messing with the, with the uh the uh tones in the studio at the same time you were starting to create them or getting ready to do it so trying to be brian at the same time as i was being the guy playing the parts that's so great
1: that's so great i love this i can't i can't thank you enough for being
0: my pleasure so, being my pleasure so
1: open about this. all right welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute
0: So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to for grand podcast.
1: Final song on the record, the big country. Now here's what I read about this. David Byrne uh, had been known for his cold and disaffected view of society. So this is an openly mean dismissal of the rural flyover areas of America. But years later, he claimed it was a satire of his image as a snobby New Yorker and that he has a deep respect for those parts of the U.S. Mm. Um,
0: thoughts on mm. that? Well, we did fly to California. We, we very often, we really built our audience in California because they seemed to react to us. And so after the New England and around New York, that sort of eastern seaboard, we spent a lot of time in California, partially because we'd go out there in the winter and it'd be warmer. And so we so we said a lot of cross country flights where you could sit at the window and you're just looking down at the farmland and like wonder what those people are doing down there. You know? I'd have no idea if if what David's saying is true or if that when he got out to do true stories and was living in Texas and he started to which has a potentially I mean true stories has a respect, but also a potentially maybe um slightly new york snobby look at of of middle America we'll say too so um he certainly had the the potential for both we'll say and and I think that he grew to appreciate um uh, i mean David expanded as a person he's expanded in his songwriting, you know so um
1: did you guys get any backlash from, from fans or maybe friends in those flyover states?
0: No, uh, I think that Live got more backlash for writing Shit Town than we, did for the, <laughs> than we did for the big country.
1: Yeah, dude. I mean, this song was called Shit Town. Yeah, yeah. You know I mean, they um, might have been like, you know, York, Pennsylvania sucks.
0: York, Pennsylvania yeah, sucks. Yeah. Oh, God.
1: But that's such a I – but mean, then here's the other thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, unless you have more on that. Well,
0: the one thing I'd say about, so I was playing the slide guitar, which I was. Yes, that's what I wanted to talk about. So I'm not a particularly, I was not a very uh, adept and used to playing slide guitar. Yeah. And so I was, I was playing it. And finally I went back and say, I think we should, we need to slow the tape down for me to play this and I'll tune my guitar down. And we slowed it down. Maybe with the thought that we would just speed it up, but that way I would be able to. I played it, and then everyone went, I like it much better at this other <laughs> tempo. And then it's that's what that became the tempo of the song.
1: All right, here, let's play play uh, JT, play a little bit of a slide guitar for us. I see
0: the shapes, I remember thumb laps. I see the shoreline,
1: I see the. Great. You killed
0: yep. it. Hey, killed me. Yep. All
1: right. That's great. Also, I heard this was inspired musically and lyrically by the Roxy music song Prairie Rose.
0: Uh possibly. I don't possibly.
1: know. Possibly. Who knows? Eno. Eno does crazy things. All right. you want to do a couple facts and we'll get you out of here?
0: Sure. I mean, you wanted to ask me about live, so like
1: Oh, well, that's that's the li- all right. well, fuck. Now okay. I'm on the spot about it. Yeah. Let me get a couple facts and then I'll do okay. the I'll do the rapid questions about it. Okay. Um So uh, the success of the Take Me to the River single got them on American Bandstand, where after their performance, David Byrne gave such an awkward interview, host Dick Clark turned to Tina Weymouth to desperately ask, is he always this enthusiastic? And she glibly replied, I guess he's just organically shy. Can you tell me
0: about that? (laughs) It was a very weird weird scene. It was out in a... uh, Out way out in the valley, like I think out in Glendale, but like out towards the San Geronimo Mountains. And they shot multiple uh, episodes on the same day. So the audience between episodes would madly go out to their cars and you'd see all these people changing their clothes in the parking lot for the next show. And... You know, it's like you're on Dick Clark, and you're sort of, you know, I mean, I remember Dick Clark from American Bandstand when I was growing up, and it's sort of like you're kind of going, "Holy shit!" Is he had a lot of plastic surgery? Christ! And but also, it's like, I'm, oh my God, I'm on on uh, American Bandstand, and and yes, I mean, I'm a little bit tongue-tied, I would say, when I'm asked, but David was uh, more. I mean, I think one of the things I know that like on American Utopia, it's wonderful to see that David has become so comfortable. I think one of the more interesting things about American Utopia is him, his conversations to with the audience, not really back and forth, but to the audience about subject matter, um, which of course, in Talking Heads, it was, he didn't really want to talk to the audience. So we, that was our sets were very much like, Song to song, 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 to song. You know, name of the song is song, to song, to song. You know, it was relentlessly, here's the music in our songs. This is not about being relaxed and let's pull up a stool and, you know, chat about like anything about, or as a lot, you know, a lot of people that's almost their most, uh, one of the more endearing things. Uh, I remember I was with Peter Coyote seeing Tom Rush, an old, 60s folk singer who was playing at Sweetwater here in Mill Valley. And Tom Rush goes, I just had a kid. You know, most of my friends, they're having grandkids. He goes, I just decided, cut out the middleman. And, you know, it was, you know, the audience, it was uproariously funny to the audience. And so that was as important as the songs to people, as like the, the whole atmosphere. We weren't like yeah. we weren't like that at all, so yeah, Tita was uh, right.
1: Well, speaking of atmosphere, we've kind of brought this one up earlier, uh, but for for the first, you guys were the first artist to record at Island Records founders. Uh, Chris Blackwell's Compass Point Studios in Nassau, the Bahamas, which we mentioned, which which had reportedly just been christened for good luck in the Jamaican custom by Blackwell. And this is we've been talking about this all show by him spitting out the blood of a freshly slaughtered chicken around it. And that voodoo must work because you guys recorded two more albums there. Is that correct? And why do you guys hate chickens?
0: As far as I know, that is correct. And I know that Lee Scratch Perry wrote a whole thing when he was mad, about, mad at Chris Blackwell about that. So you could – I don't know if you've got that track, but you could learn more about it from that. We will, we will find out. We will find out about but, you know, it. I do. I do think it was a – I don't know if it's actually for good luck or to ward off evil spirits. I'm not, I'm not I
1: think it's, I, it's probably ward off evil spirits because it sounds very much like the, the putting the lamb's blood on the door for Passover. You yeah, know what I I mean? like, it, yeah. I
0: think it's more of a sacrifice for the evil spirits rather than a good luck. Yeah. And, and we had a great time there. Like there was uh there was this other artist named Ijaban that was recording when we did our first record there. When we were doing Remain in Light, uh, ACDC was in the next room doing Back in the Black. Oh, my God. And we, what was interesting is, first of all, like, Chris got some snorkel gear, and Chris and Tina and I were going out snorkeling, and, like, it was, I had never snorkeled. It's like, oh, my God, is this one. I was, like, in a bad mood. And Chris goes, you got to come and do this. And there was like, I'm in a bad mood. I and then I put my face in the water, like, Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not in a bad mood at all, you know. And no one in ACDC ever went in the water like sharks, sharks, not going to do that. But we recorded all of the basic tracks to the entire record in three weeks. And as I remember, they did one guitar solo and one vocal in the same period of time.
1: That's hilarious. So, it, you
0: know, and it was right when Brian Johnson had joined the band and he would get these compression headaches. So he'd, you know, it's like he'd go, Mah! and he, "Oh God, I got it!" And he'd see him going, "Oh, I got to get rid of this." So it was such. He'd go, "I don't have this problem live. I don't understand why I'm having this." But he had some big shoes to fill. I could understand the pressure. Pressure, yeah. And uh, and of course, Bunt Lang is a excellent singer and a and a credible producer. We did, we did Def Leppard Hysteria. Yes, and I, I, he also did. I, I don't know one of the Def Leppard albums. He, they worked on it for a few years and they had finished, almost finished the record. And he was going, the radio's changed. We have to start over. It's We're hysteria. Gonna... It's the one yeah. we
1: did. We did this on the podcast. He wanted to make, he wanted to make a heavy metal, uh, thriller.
0: Yeah. And so we, and he went to Denmark or something like that to do, you know, um he, yeah, but he was, I never, I mean, we, we talked at a party at Chris Blackwell's house. One, you know, but I'm I'm sorry that I didn't get to know him better because I do really respect what he's done. Though he is, I, I did hear a funny story. I don't know if it's true that Bono was walking down the streets of of Dublin and ran into the singer of Def Leppard, and there was a guide track that Mutt had put down, and the singer of Def Leppard, whose name now escapes me. And Bonnie goes, "Well, what are you doing at the studio today?" And he goes, "Today I'm going, yeah, no, that's not quite right, yeah, no, that's it." And it's sort of like, "Oh my god!" So that you know, one thing about Eno is he wouldn't put up with that. It would be like, "We need to get like ten of these songs done today. Let's go, let's go. That's fine. Let's
1: go." I love it. All right, I got some rapid fire questions. And um, this, all right. So, uh, what is what song off this record are you most proud of? Take me to the river. Take me to the river. Um, Is there any song on this record that is that you might skip over when listening to it? No, no. Okay. Good answer. Um, Then these are, I pulled these from other ones. Uh, What was your wildest gig? Wildest or strangest gig with talking
0: heads playing in Milan. It was a show that was like the tickets were $10. It was outside, but 10,000 people decided they wanted to get in free and they pushed the fence down and the police started shooting tear gas at the people who were coming in. And then they started shooting tear gas at us and at the sound tower. And so.
1: And they're, and they're probably shouting stuff in Italian at you. You don't. I mean, yeah, and, totally and so, and
0: so, I mean, there were a whole number of these ones. And so there's, there's this, tear gas is wafting up on stage and everyone's going, Oh, is that bug repellent? And Steve scale, I had been in demonstrations, So I knew what it was. And Steve scales, you know, who was in Vietnam goes, that's fucking tear gas. (laughs) 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 So that was strange. And then the night before we played in Bologna in the middle of a field and there were 5,000 people backstage and, Alex Weir had gotten hit by a someone throwing a beer on stage, got, kind of bruised his head. And we said, we got to get out of here. We got on the bus and our crew came to us and said, if you want to play tomorrow night and have equipment, get back on stage and do some encores because we are not guarding your equipment. You know, there's 20,000 people out there and 5,000 behind us. So we dutifully went out and like made the crowd happy. Oh, God bless you. Um, all right, what was your most magical moment in the entire
1: career of Talking Heads?
0: I think playing Forest Hills Stadium. Uh, and I think it was I'm not sure if it was stopped making sense or the tour before it stopped making sense, but it was the old Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. Um, uh, Madonna and Mick Jagger were like right to my right, watching from the side of the stage. Uh the audience, it's a beautifully designed for a concert because it's so steep that it's as if there's an entire, like 20,000 people, like, but, you know, five stories, like right in front of, you know, not like out, but in front of you. And they were so into it and so close feeling, but still a really big audience. And the band was like at its like, you know, really great. And, you know, we had a great show. It was home. New York was home. And that was a, Certainly there's many peak moments but that one really stands out.
1: I love it. I love it. And then after the show you drank way too much too quickly and had to go <laughs> to <into> the hotel. <laughs> um all right and then I want this is about production what record have you produced
0: that you are most proud of? Oh that's that's almost impossible to uh to an, to, an, to answer. I mean you know throwing <laughs> copper definitely <laughs> sticks out. It's yes. it certainly sold the most and It sort of defined, uh, you know, people, a lot of other producers have come up to me and people have said that that record really influenced the sound of records going forward. And that was, uh, we recorded up at Pachyderm up in, uh, Minnesota uh, in Minnesota where, uh, um, Nirvana Nirvana had just been in, made in utero there. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at studios and I basically said to the guys at Live, we're only going to work at a studio that everybody can drive to. Because I don't want some motherfucker going off and, and there's only, and someone took the car and they're miserable. If they want to get in their car and go take a break, they got to be able to have their own car if they want it there. So we did the rehearsals in Milwaukee and then we went up to Minnesota and then, when you know, Tom Lord Alge, I brought him to mix that, and you know it's a funny thing. Because you, when when you're working on records, you a lot of them you think you fall in love with every one of them, and you think they have the potential to be really great. Or like, or an awful lot of them. Not every single one, but that one. Over time, you just go, boy, there is not a bad song on this record. No. In fact, we in fact we did not like a song called "Turn My Head" and another couple of other songs that were hit songs that could have been on that record. That that record really has stood the test of time and is it, it just is 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 just great. And I loved working with Ed. You know, I did um I've done, you know, I did a bunch of records with them, but they were wonderful guys. Did you
1: argue with Ed over including the word placenta on that record? It's the only hit song where the word yes. placenta yeah. I sing that song I do a show called The yeah. Goddamn Comedy Jam Where comedians And I'm talking like Bill Burr And mm-hmm. Chappelle's done it Everybody's done it Where they do stand-up Then they tell a story About why they chose The song they're gonna sing And then they sing The cover song With my band And yeah. it's, we do it at festivals We've done it at like Bonnaroo But we do all these Comedy festivals And the best reaction Is me opening the show <laughs> Like I build it up Like I'm about to Are you guys ready to rock? Alright all right, here we go Two, three, four <clears throat> and and everybody knows every word. And then I riff in the middle of the song on the placenta line.
0: I thought, I thought that it was a little risky, but I was fine with it. And I didn't argue with it. Um, I had, you know, on the distance to hear, I think that I, uh, I think it's called, what is it called? The children's song or something. Um, That song didn't have lyrics and I got Ed to write lyrics. And I was, and he wanted it to be the Pilgr- the pilgrim song, and I said, "No, sounds like children." Don't say P- you could use pilgrim song once, but I was uh, tra- fighting him a little bit on overly religious imagery. I felt that it was just a little, uh, I don't know, presumptuous or pushing it down the throats of his. Uh, you know, I liked it when there was some. Ambiguity, was it your girl? Was it, you know, was it about some devotion to a religion that you felt, or was it about a girl? I thought was better, yeah. All right,
1: final. Qu- I could talk about that record. I got you know what? I'm gonna bring you back. We're gonna do a whole episode on yeah. that record. Um, and then I asked this to every guest, but in, and it's weird having somebody that worked on the record on this, but does this record deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list? And you have three more albums. Well, actually you have four, um, probably more than that. If I really research it, but three more talking heads records are all coming up on this list.
0: I I think so. You know, I, you know, I had one time, there was a time, Chris and Tina and I were playing a show that was other artists doing Roy Orbison songs that his wife had, organized as a benefit so it was like katie lang doing uh crying which was extraordinary and we were out in la and my and my wife and i we pulled up to the where we were staying and the first you know i think thank you for sending an angel, angel came on and they played the entire record and we just sat in the car and listened to the entire record and I hadn't listened to the whole record in a really long time, but at this point point you know this is basically the band had already disbanded, really, so you know this is possibly ten years later, you know, and it was like, "Wow, is this song great, and this you know and it just the way it moves from song to song so, yeah, I think it deserves to be up there. I mean, when Rolling Stone did the first hundred best albums, yeah. It's a chart that's very hard to find. I had four records in the top 100. I had the Modern Lovers and three Talking Heads albums. And the Modern Lovers was above all of the Talking Heads records.
1: It's crazy because I had no idea how important that record is, but people are saying that originated punk.
0: But so I had as many records as the Beatles on that chart. That's fucking nuts, dude. Yeah, so that I, I tried to track down that chart, and someone actually from the... Uh, Rock and roll Hall of Fame helped me track it down because it was sort of like, that's the chart I want on my wall. <laughs> yeah, you know what they do in studios where they highlight with yellow? Oh, yeah. The ones, we, yeah, you know, so. <laughs>
1: I, I love that. And what a perfect way to end the episode, because um, it's such a, I've, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. I was extremely nervous about making sure I didn't fuck this up. Uh, we've only had a couple of like the people that worked on the album uh, on the podcast. I, we had Billy Gibbons for ZZ Top. We had uh, James, the accordion player from the Pogues. But, you know, I had so much more time with those records and I and I really we did the last record and then we did this one. So back to back, I, I didn't have the full amount of time to absorb it. But but I'm telling you, I had so much fun talking to you. You have this record and speaking with you has made me. A to- oh, I got one more question. Have you been to Talking Heads, the club in Baltimore? Because I used to no. party there no. so
0: much. I didn't even know it existed. So. It's a shithole. Okay. It's a
1: shithole in and but it used to have the best party called Tax Low, which was like all the hipsters and the dumpster divers would dance to. Like at the time, it was like Franz Ferdinand and Joy Division, and it was you know like a like a like a pre-punk kind of like post-punk dance party. And right. um, damn, well be, be glad you didn't go. But if okay. you ever want to go when this is all done, okay, please be my guest. Uh, I can't
0: thank you enough, buddy. Do you have anything you want to promote? Well, first of all, are you aware of the? One of the last records I made was the Butcherettes. Butcherettes. Yeah, I,
1: I saw and them I, live,
0: opening for uh, for uh, at the drive-in. The audience that maybe is would us tune in for Talking Heads. Check out check out this album I did with them. It, I'm really proud of that record, and it's uh, uh and go see the and go and listen to the record and see the the film. Take Me to the River. One thing about the record is. I think Eric Thorngren and I who mixed it, and Eric is such a genius, is that it has the feel of a record made in the 60s. It has that warmth and that sound that we all grew up with that I think that most records made now, they don't feel like that at all. They don't make you feel happy in the way that those old records do. And we we were able to do it with modern equipment with people, you know it's not like we never used pro tools to do anything we did it all but we but we just have enough experience to be judicious enough to not ruin the spirit of the of the flaws and the spontaneity and stuff like that so really check out the movie take me to the river and and actually just listen to the record the record I will. the C- cd is unbelievable
1: I went to go – like I said, I went to go see at the drive-in when they did the reunion tour a few years ago, and uh, they opened for – because I think she was dating Omar, Yeah,
0: she's married to Omar, yeah. She's married to Omar,
1: and I mean just – and by the way, I was with my friend. You probably know him, Dean Del Rey. Do you know Dean Del Rey? He's a a comic now, but he was a musician. He knows everybody. Okay, you're the first person that doesn't know this guy. Uh, but uh, he took me. We were side stage, and I watched the whole show. And the Butcherettes, I mean, just incredible. So I'll definitely check the record out. Okay, uh, definitely watch a movie. I right. I can't thank you enough, brother. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's so called much. it's
0: it's called By Mental. And nice nice to meet you both. Okay, thank you.
1: What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Jerry Harrison, Fleece Army. Once again, you can find Jerry on all social media at Jerry Harrison Official. Get his records. Listen to the live record. Trust me, what he said about it is so spot on. Couldn't be happier. Wow, God, I'm. So, I can't believe I talked to the guy that produced "Throwing Copper." That's the shit. Our new music pick this week. Because we just listened to Talking Eds from 78. You are listening to Les Butcherettes, the band Jerry mentioned, with their new song, Don't Bleed, You're in the Middle of the Forest, off their latest Don't Bleed EP. Les Butcherettes are a Mexican garage punk band formed in 2007 in Guadalajara by Terry Genderbender. They won Best New Artist and Best Punk Record in the O Awards in 2009 and have performed with Mars Volta, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Queens of the Stone Age, and At the Drive-In, which I saw then. And you can find their links on the website, the500podcast.com. And if you want your music featured on the 500 because you were influenced by one of these albums or artists, send us your song to 500 podcast at gmail.com. Put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week it's Modern Lovers Week. We're going deep into their seventy six self-titled debut record, man. Some say it's the birth of punk we will we'll have to find out next week listen to the record you got homework to do doogle doogle stay fleecy yeah.
0: So please subscribe to No
1: The Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road.
0: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.
1: Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you.